Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch. The skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy. This is all you really have to think about when it comes to posture. I think that people, when they think about like sitting up straight or like what their mothers told them, you know, you could end up like puffing out your chest, which doesn't look that great. Or you feel like you're like a, a pupil in a classroom that also doesn't look that great. It looks very rigid. There's only one thing I want you to think about when it comes to posture, which is the distance between your earlobe and your shoulder. Weirdest distance, I know, but that is actually, especially on video calls, it's also, or in, in profile photos, the distance between your earlobe and your shoulder, the shorter that is, the more defeated, ashamed, and embarrassed or low power you look. And that is because, and you can try this, if you shrink your head down and roll your shoulders up, and I'm doing it right now, you can actually hear I have less vocal power. The moment I relax my shoulders, I have a lot more volume. I am able to stay a little bit lower in my range. And that is because confident people, their shoulders are down and back. Their chin and their head is up really high, not out, but high. They have their chest nice and relaxed and their arms are loose by their side. When you walk into a bar, when you hop on video, when you walk into a meeting, I want you to maximize the distance between your ear and your shoulder. That's all I want you to think about. That is the most powerful thing you can do for your posture. I'm Srini Rao, and this is the Unmistakable Creative Podcast, where you get a window into the stories and insights of the most innovative and creative minds who've started movements, built thriving businesses, written best-selling books, and created insanely interesting art. For more, check out our 500-episode archive at unmistakablecreative.com. Vanessa, welcome back to the Unmistakable Creative. Thanks so much for taking the time to join us. It's so good to be back. It is my pleasure to have you back. Uh, I think, you know, you're probably one of my favorite podcast guests. I, I remember, oh. I think when I was on your show, we were joking. It's like when my older Matt asked about you, it was like, what's Vanessa like? I was like, Vanessa is like the hot girl who doesn't know she's hot. She's really oh. nice. <laughs> like, yeah. It's like the but, nicest thing to say. <laughs> but all joking aside, you have a new book out called Cues, all of which we will get into. Um, Last time I asked you about your social group in high school, and this time I wanted to start asking, what did your parents do for work? And how did that end up shaping and influencing the choices that you've made with your life and your career? Fun question. I've never been asked that. So both of my parents are entertainment lawyer producers. So both of my parents are very analytical. Um, And what's funny is I think that what shaped me less in their jobs would be more the fact that they got divorced when I was about three and immediately remarried. And I had to switch houses every three and a half days. 
So I was constantly bouncing back and forth between two totally different families. My dad went on to raise his own family. I was one of four, um, lived in a totally different neighborhood. My mom, it was just me. She ended up having a very successful career. I was kind of at home alone. So I was bouncing between literally two totally different households. And it made me have to be not only adaptable, but I was a little bit I had to be able to read the adults in the room very quickly because I had literally just been gone. And that I think is why I'm so obsessed with reading people. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask you like, you know, um, how you navigate the social dynamics of going back and forth between these two families. I mean, what is that process of adaptation and, you know, what does it look like day to day? And how do you do that without losing your mind? Cause that seems like a um, lot for a kid to take on. It was, it was so much. And I think, um, so there's two ways I think that we can be adaptable as humans, which is exactly what happened to me, which is either you're a chameleon. So you go into a place and you completely adopt whatever norms, body language, voice tone, language is being used around you. The other way that you do it is you become staunchly and ruthlessly yourself. So you go in and you're like, I don't care what any of the other people are doing. This is me, accept me for who I am or who I'm not. Mm-hmm. My elementary school years, I was a chameleon and it was exhausting. That's yeah. when I had my most awkwardness at school. I had high, social hives all over my body. So I'd have to often go to school in like turtlenecks and long sleeves and um, pants because I had like welts all over my body. I would um, like have panic attacks at school and at home because I was trying so hard to fit in and it wasn't me. My teenage years, I switched into the second, which I think a lot of teenagers also might have dipped into that ruthlessly myself. Um, and that caused its own problems because then I had a lot of fights with my parents and my siblings. Um, and so that was very formative because now I feel like awkwardness. I joke that I'm a recovering awkward person, as you know. Everyone who's listening, I'm sure, has some kind of awkwardness. That could be awkward silences. That could be not feeling like yourself. That could be feeling like you're being too much of a chameleon, like you're having to adapt to everyone else. Everyone's awkwardness dresses up in a different way. Some people become, should they shut down? They become, um, uh, they hold back, they hide themselves. Other people raise up, they become overly dramatic and over-talkative and show-offy. And so I think what's really in- interesting is to think about how does your awkwardness dress up? What do you do? Do you shut down or do you dial up? Yeah. So your parents being entertainment lawyers and incredibly analytical, were they naturally charismatic communicators? You know, my dad is exceptionally charismatic. I actually just interviewed him on my YouTube channel (laughs) because I wanted him to talk about his charisma. And my mom has learned charisma. So my mom has learned, and I actually would talk to her about this. She's learned like the structure of conversation, just like a lawyer would. And she knows which conversations to use and when. So I think that I might've picked up more on that side. I don't think that I'm naturally charismatic. And so I think that I had to learn soft skills like like a foreign language. It just mm-hmm. didn't come naturally. So I have to think of conversation starters. Like I say this word now, now I do a head tilt. Now I need to eyebrow raise. And so for me, it's much more like trying to learn a foreign language. Yeah. Why do you think it is that certain people are actually naturally charismatic? And, you know, how much of that has to do, you think, with upbringing, you know, environment, parents, peers? Mm. There is a little bit of research on this. Now, charisma and leadership are not interchangeable, right? So some leaders are not charismatic, but I think a lot of leaders become leaders because they are charismatic. And some research identifies it, and this is approximate, that 70% of our 
leaders are based on life choices. So how they got there was based on their choices and 30% is genetic. I don't know exactly how they measure that genetic aspect, but their yeah. argument is that most of most leaders have actually learned to figure out what is charismatic so they can interact with people. So I, when it comes down to like the research, what makes someone charismatic, this is the, the research that I totally opened my eyes to how people interact, was very simple. It finally explained why are these charismatic people charismatic, which is highly charismatic people rank high in two traits. And if they rank high in these two traits, people want to be around them. They are high in warmth and competence. And that is that leaders who are warm, open, collaborative, trustworthy, but at the very same time, they're also capable, competent, powerful, and impressive. Those are the people we want to be around. And if there's any mismatch or there's an uneven amount of either of those things, we don't consider them charismatic. Okay. So that raises a question as you and I were talking about my obsession with, you know, how Steve Jobs ran Apple. I mean, Steve Jobs was kind of the opposite of warm and yet he was perceived as highly charismatic. So how do you, like, what explains that paradox? So I think, so if you, if you read some of the biographies of Steve Jobs, he was very, very high in competence, right? So he like off the charts in powerful, impressive, capable, efficient, but he knew how to add just enough warmth to get the job done. And if you read his biography and they break down sort of how he got people on board, some of his discussions with people, warmth is not just a smiley, bubbly person. I think that's the mis- this is a misconception of warm people. Yes, there, there is a warmth that's like smiley and bubbly. And that was never Steve Jobs. But warmth can also be vulnerability. Warmth can also be collaboration. And that's where Steve Jobs got his warmth. My argument and the way that I see this working with him is he was ruthlessly competent, but he knew he could never do it alone. He knew without a doubt that he needed people, that he needed his team. He hired the best of the best. I think that that's the difference between him and maybe a, a just a cold or competent narcissist. Someone who's just competent, they can do it all themselves. They don't need anyone. They don't need any help. They can do it better than anyone. Steve Jobs knew other people can do this really well and I need them. And so his warmth was that he's like, I have big goals. I want to get it done, but I need you. And that's a vulnerability too, right? Saying like, I need you to do this. I'm putting my full faith in you. That's competence meets warmth. So random question, where were you in the birth order uh, amongst all these kids? And, you know, how do you get yourself heard? What's that? Do you want to guess? Do you want to guess? I would guess either you're the youngest or in the middle. So I am the only of my parents, which mm-hmm. is sort of an interesting thing. So my parents, they had me and I got divorced when I was really young. And then I immediately got an older stepbrother. And uh, then my parents sent two younger sisters. So I'm either an only or a middle, depending on how you look at it. Right? Like yeah. half the time, half my life, I was an only. And then at the other house, I was a middle. Okay. So in the other house, when you're in the middle... um, how is it that you get yourself heard in this situation? Because like, I remember reading the sections on, you know, vocal expression, and we'll get to that. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm like, yeah, my family has one volume. It's loud. <laughs> yes. So actually, let's talk about vocal power for a second, because I just love it. And I think that um, I have a younger sister who has a very unique vocal power. So I think about this a lot in terms of our family. So when the research looks at vocal power, we know that an authoritative person uses, does two things. One is they cue you to your vocal, their vocal power by speaking in their lowest natural register. 
So right now I'm working really hard with you to speak in my lowest register. When I'm talking to my husband or my daughter, I'll go a little higher up here. And this is still natural for me, but if I were to give my entire interview like this, it would drive you crazy, right? <laughs> so, so I'm down here with you because uh, research knows that, or when we take up space in our body, when confident people are relaxed, we're in our lowest register. Lower registers are heard without as much volume. So this is why a lot of the times in a big group with lots of siblings, actually the lower you go, the more you'll heard that baritone is actually heard better. Women often make the mistake of going shrill and that's because they'll go up really high. Can't you hear me? Listen to me, everyone, listen to me. And they go all the way up in that higher part of the register and that actually makes them harder to hear. Whereas the really powerful people, they speak down here and they get a lot of volume and they can pierce through that noise. That's the first thing is um, if you want to be heard, especially in a loud room, don't go up here. Don't do it. Don't do this. You're better off going lower and deeper. And that actually can help you be heard. The second thing is the other big mistake people make with their vocal power is they ask instead of stay, instead of say. So uh, the question inflection is one of my favorite giveaway cues because when we were doing our lie detection research, so in our lab, we had thousands of people submit videos of themselves lying to us. By the way, this was like the best six months of my life. Like that was so interesting. <laughs> like I was just like, I woke up every day excited for, to like watch these videos. So we had people do a couple different games with us. Um, so we had them play uh, Two Truths and a Lie. That was one of the games we had them play. So Two Truths and a Lie, you say two true statements and one lie. You mix them up and try to get people to guess. One thing that we found is that oftentimes the lie was a question inflection. In other mm. words, liars don't believe what they're saying. And so they, they're asking, do you believe me? So it sounded like this. I list, I coded all these videos. It would be like, um, I grew up in Los Angeles. I'm a only child and I'm a vegetarian. Yeah. And they would ask that lie. And so the other thing that can happen, especially with siblings, and this is um, something I talk about with my youngest sister. So are the baby of the family, my youngest sister, she speaks a lot in uptalk in the question and inflection. And I think that's because as the baby, she was always asking for things, right? Mm -hmm. She was literally always asking, listen to me, play with me. Can I have water? Can I have a cookie? Can I come in? Wait, like she was always asking things. And so now she's a, you know, 20 something professional and um, it's hard because she'll often speak and up talk. So she'll say, hi, this is Haley. Can I help you? Mm -hmm. Oh, nice to hear from you. Right? Like all up, 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 up. So the other thing I would recommend for, for folks is listen to your voicemail and also pay attention to the first 10 words out of your mouth. Yeah. The first 10 words out of your mouth should be on the downward inflection or a neutral inflection. They shouldn't be, hi, this is Vanessa. Nice to hear from you. What can I do for you? Right? Like it shouldn't be up, 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 up. It should be, hey, this is Vanessa. It's so good to hear from you. What can I do for you? Yeah. Right? Like totally different vocal power. I want to come back to this. Uh, this is particularly fascinating for me as somebody who hosts a podcast. Um, yes. Let's come back to yeah. this. Uh, yeah. What I'm curious about is uh, why this was the natural segue to the previous book and uh, you know what prompted you to write this book as the next one. And I am always fascinated by the research that you do into this because it just seems extensive. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Cool fact: A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film. If only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for fifteen dollars a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile. dot com slash switch. Upfront payment of forty five dollars, equivalent to fifteen dollars per month, unlimited over forty gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at four eighty p. Active Mint customers by five thirty one twenty four get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May thirty first, twenty twenty four. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply. If rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save fifty percent on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For JD Power twenty twenty three award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop-up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this. You're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then. Right from your iPhone, so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal. Growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit Stripe.com/tapiphone to learn more. Remember, folks, with Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Oh, I'm really into big data. And the reason for that is because we use a lot of peer review journals in the books and in my work, which I love. But a lot of the times those are small data sets. And also they're all peer reviewed. They use uh, an internal review board. They're very, very official. If I'm going to do my own research, the one thing I can do if I don't have the IRB, I'm not peer reviewed, is use a lot of data, a lot of and the most amount of data we can possibly find. So that's one of the reasons why I try to use big data is it's one of the few uh, perks we have of being independent. And then the first question you asked, uh, you know, it's just personally, totally transparently. After I wrote Captivate, I was like, I have nothing else to say. It's like, I, I said it all. That was it. 
There's nothing left. It took everything out of me. I felt like I had shared every story in the depths of my mind and my body. And then two years later, Captivate did really well upon launch. And then it was like, you know, slowly simmering. And then it kind of took off again. There was like this weird, I don't know what happened, but it tipped again. And people started really buying it, started to get picked up again. And I started getting all these questions of things that I didn't address in Captivate, but I was, I had already researched. And it brought me to this little folder that I started on my desktop 17 years ago, which I never would have guessed that this folder would have been a book. 17 years ago, I started clipping what I called curious cues. Again, I had no idea this was being booked later. At the time, I was noticing that a lot of bad actors, athletes who were doping, liars in the news, politicians who were lying, not that ever, anyone ever lies in the news, not the politicians that ever lie, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. But all these scandals were breaking around that time. And I noticed it didn't matter if they were an athlete or a politician or a celebrity. They were using very similar cues and tells for guilt, shame, fear, and sadness. I was like, wow, this politician is doing the same thing as that athlete who doped. And so I started clipping them. At the same time, I was noticing on the other end of the spectrum, there were all these really charismatic people. Again, politicians, athletes, celebrities, and they were using their own set of very charismatic cues that I would watch a keynote and then a TED talk and then an Ellen interview and then an Oprah interview. And these very charismatic people were using the same cues. And I, it kind of, in my mind, it formed this question that I then kept adding and adding and adding to this folder that maybe there's this universal language of cues, like we speak English or we speak Spanish, speak French. Maybe there's also this language that humans speak through our verbal, nonverbal, vocal, and imagery cues. And could we code it? Like, could I actually find patterns to create like a dictionary or a glossary so we could speak it more purposefully? That question ended up being the start of cues. <laughs> Who would have guessed it 14 years later? Wow. Okay. Well, you know, the one thing you say at the, the very beginning of the book is that the number one way to improve your interactions is to send clear cues based on your goals. When you need more credibility or to be taken seriously in negotiations, pitches, and important interviews, dial up competence. Additionally, if you're with someone who appreciates highly intelligent, capable, efficient people, use more competence cues. Now, we talked briefly about competence and warmth. And you know, I know you broke this down into a combination, like you said, of verbal, vocal, uh, nonverbal, and imagery cues. So let's start by talking specifically about verbal cues. Uh, and when mm -hmm. you say verbal cues, are we talking just words in general? Just words. So this, so okay. yes, so verbal cues are just the types of words that we use. And that, that I would also lump in emojis. <laughs> I know that's a weird one, but I, emojis and verbal cues are, are one and the same because we tend to use them in our texts, our emails, our chats, our Slack. Yes. Um, okay. So, you know, in the interest of, you know, my own self-interest, um, I'm going to ask you how I use verbal cues more effectively when I'm sending messages on an online dating app. Love it. Love it. Okay. First, um, the first thing is um, you want to use words that trigger or create the correct neural maps. We'll get real sciencey on this because this is, I think, how we have to think about it. So a neural map is uh, a cluster of words or ideas around a certain concept. So for example, if you're on a dating app, you had a picture of yourself skiing, okay? 
And then you sent a message to a, a lady friend that said, um, howdy, just howdy. Let's start with that. Howdy. They howdy. <laughs> I'm in Texas. All right. Howdy is a really interesting uh, word and it triggers all kinds of neural maps. Maybe South, maybe Texas, maybe cowboy, maybe adventure. That's on the positive side. But it also can create negative cues. Like maybe you, you hate the South. Maybe you feel like that's a really old school term. Maybe you think that's real nerdy and cheesy. Those are two distinct set of neural maps. I want you to use words that trigger neural maps of your ideal partner. So if you want to attract a woman who is turned on by howdy, I want you to use howdy. If you have a woman who's going to be turned on by bonjour, I want you to use bonjour. If you have a woman who's going to be turned on by aloha, I want you to use aloha. So in other words, I want you to not use default words. I think a lot of the times in our messages, we'll say, hey, hi. <laughs> That's like throwing away your charisma. It, it isn't heard. You're going to blend it with everyone else. I would rather you think in the first 10 words of this message, what are at least two or three neural maps that I can trigger for my ideal person? And also, this is going to turn off the wrong people. So mm-hmm. if you say, you know, um, uh, um, howdy. Let's stick with howdy. Um, uh, I hope you're having a lovely day. Okay. Let's just try that. At least that's a little bit positive, uh, a little bit more, um, uh, a, a kind of a nice question. If you want to level it up a little bit. You could say, um, howdy. Did you have any, uh, what would I say? Howdy. Um, uh, what'd you have for breakfast this morning? Just to be different and unique. Now I'm a breakfast lover, right? Like I could eat breakfast three times a day. So if I'm looking for a partner, I want someone who's like, oh, I love breakfast. I had waffles. I had oatmeal. I don't want someone who's like, oh, I don't eat breakfast. In fact, that would probably turn them off. Like if I, oh. I don't not going to marry or date someone who doesn't eat breakfast, right? Like I yeah. got to have my breakfast. In other words, this is a silly example, but I want you to begin to think of creating neural maps to repel the wrong people and attract the right ones. Hmm. Okay. It's funny you say that because like I will often, you know, on certain dating apps, get these messages. There's like literally one where it's like, Hey, I'm like, what do you expect me to do with that? Horrible, right? Hor- it's like, that's like saying that's, I, that's a conversational bomb, right? It's like, you're throwing something in the conversation, but like, it doesn't do anything. It doesn't help us. Um, now you have the choice depending on if you're attracted to them or not. You like their profile. If you're going to take a, the conversational, uh, load. So I, I think that there's two different types of conversationalists. There's conversational drivers and there's conversational passengers. I do not think there's in between, by the way. Conversational drivers are typically the ones who carry the load. You know what I'm saying? Like they, they, they're, they're the ones willing to ask the, the, the hard or interesting questions. They're the ones who come up with the clever answers. They're the ones who bridge topics. They're the ones who, um, will, you know, rekindle after a couple of hours of being quiet. You have to decide if you're willing to be a conversational driver. And if you are, great. You take that hey, and then you pick up the conversational load and you're like, oh yeah, hey, or howdy in response or aloha, whatever it is, or cheerio or whatever it is you want to say. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's going to help um, you're, you're willing to take that load. If you're not that into them, you can be a passenger, right? And you know what a passenger does? Hey, back, right? Yeah. If you don't want to be a driver, you don't have to be. You can just respond with that mimic cry or mirroring with the hey back. Mm-hmm. A little tiny yeah. settlement here. On dating profiles, a little hack I like to use is I like to copy their way that they use emojis 
I like to mimic or mirror the way they use words unless they're misspelled. So I do this with my students as well as, as a, a verbal sign of respect. So if someone uses a smiley face with a colon and a parentheses, I use a colon and parentheses. If someone uses an equal sign and a parentheses, I use an equal sign of parentheses. I literally will copy the kinds of emojis they use as a, as a verbal respect. Yeah. Let's talk about two things um, really quick, but decoding and encoding. You say decoding is how we read and interpret social signals from others. Social signals help us decipher everything about a person, their intentions toward us, their trustworthiness, their competence, and even their personality. Encoding is how we send social cues. We send some cues purposefully. We stand with good posture to show confidence or we smile to show friendliness. And I want to, talk to you about this in uh, maybe a bizarre context and maybe you're familiar with it or not. So there are two shows recently on Netflix. One is called The Tinder Swindler and the other <laughs> is called Inventing Anna. Um, and they're both about people who, you know, deceived hundreds of people into believing things about them that were completely untrue. Wow. I haven't seen either of them, but I'm excited to watch them. Tell me, what's the concept? So Inventing right Anna is literally the story of some girl in New York who convinced the entire social elite of New York that she was some German heiress. She got them to basically give her thousands of dollars, spend money. Basically, people allowed her to use their credit cards to stay in like five-star hotels and spend oh. boatloads of money. Uh, and then the Tinder swindler is a similar story about a guy who basically pretended to be, you know, some sort of uh, billionaire's kid and swindled one woman after another where he would get one woman to give him a credit card. And then he would use that credit card to go and court some other woman. Oh, oh it was I mean, it was, it's madness. But I just I, I knew that I wanted to talk to you about it because I thought to myself, I'm like, OK, this would be an interesting Vanessa Van Edwards conversation. You know, it's so interesting because. This is my secret fear with this book. And I really struggle with this. My biggest worry is cues are very powerful. And I am assuming that readers are using them with good intention, but yeah. they can be used with bad intention. And like, that is my biggest worry. I think that charmers and con men and women, they know this invisible language. They speak it very fluently and they can turn it on when they want to. And so that is like my biggest fear is I bet you, and I can't wait to go watch that. Miss Anna was able to dial up her warmth and her competence. So people were like, oh, and this is the two questions we ask about people. So you talked about decoding and encoding, which is exactly right. When we are with people, we are tr quickly trying to decode all the cues we're being sent to answer two questions as quickly as possible. The first question we ask about a person is, can I trust you? Are you a threat? Are you on my team? The second question we ask about a person is, can I rely on you? Are you smart? Are you going to give me good information? And we're trying to answer those incredibly quickly. And once we do, we're like, check. So my bet is that these people knew how to very quickly say, you can trust me and you can rely on me. And then people handed over their credit card. That is my biggest concern. And I hope everyone listening is going to read with good intentions. Okay, so in that case, how do we create uh the sense of reliability and trust when we're interacting with other people, you know, since, you know, we're talking about dating and, you know, everybody jokes that every guest on the show is a reflection, whatever problem I'm trying to solve in my life. We're going to continue <laughs> with that as our primary framework. So let's say I'm on a date and I want to quickly communicate that, you know, I'm somebody that this person can trust and that they can rely on. Okay. So assuming good intentions, um, this, and by the way, this works on a date, on a video call, 
uh, uh, in, in, in a meeting works, actually the rules are pretty the same based on professional romantic or social situations. So the very first thing is, um, oddly, I'm going to say the weirdest thing on this podcast, which is our palms are sexy. So a lot of the times we think about a date, being attractive, getting our hair to look good, making our outfit look right. That's all great. But actually the sexiest part of your body when it comes to those two questions is your palms. And the reason for this, if you think about this from a evolutionary perspective, okay, is when we could see someone's palms, we know they're not hiding anything from us. We know that they're not uh, withholding. If you make a fist, right? A fist is of anger. It's of tension. It's of clenching. A palm is literally the opposite of that. So you want to show your palm within the first 10 seconds. <laughs> it's literally like saying, you can see my hand. I'm showing you my hand. So on a video call, the very first thing I do is, hey, good morning. I hold up my hand. Or, oh, so good to see you. And I hold up my hand. When I walk into a restaurant, I wave, oh, good to see you. When I walk across the room, I beckon people over to sit with me with an open palm. When someone comes into my office, I wave them through with an open palm. Literally, that immediately helps people trust you. And that sounds really crazy. That So that trust is for trust, but it's also for belonging, right? The other thing that people really want is they want to know, do you welcome me? Are you accepting me? Are you acknowledging me? And on a date especially, we're so scared that we're not welcome or that we're not deserving. And so you literally want to welcome someone with open palms, right? Like come sit. Oh, it's so good to finally see you with your palms and hands open. That is a universal gesture of welcoming. So one, it's a really easy one. Always, always palm open, beckoning in the first 10 seconds. The second thing that you want to do is create oxytocin. So oxytocin is a very complicated chemical in our body. It does lots of things. But for our purposes, it is the chemical of social connection. Oxytocin, when they give people nose sprays of oxytocin, they literally do this in the lab. They make people sniff oxytocin. When people do that, they share more profits when they play prisoner's dilemma. They immediately become more trustworthy. So oxytocin is what you want. It's the chemical that helps you bond. The problem is when we're nervous, we end up stifling that oxytocin loop. So how do we produce oxytocin? One is through eye contact. So the moment we mutually gaze with someone, we both begin to produce oxytocin. This also happens through a video call. So even looking from through a camera, we can produce oxytocin. So making eye contact and locking eyes in the first few seconds of interacting is going to immediately burst that oxytocin. The second way that we produce oxytocin is through touch. Yeah. So um, the, the more touch, the longer the touch, the more oxytocin. So a handshake is okay. A long handshake is even better. A hug is the best. A cheek kiss is even better. Uh, a back pat is okay, but a, a, a around the arm or around the shoulder or a lower back touch is even better. Mm-hmm. All of those are producing this chemical loop that helps you feel more trustworthy. Yeah. The last thing I would say about the oxytocin is We also found, I did a research experiment with Dr. Paul Zak. He runs uh, immersion neuroscience. He's like the chief oxytocin researcher and a good friend of mine. In the, in the pandemic, we were wondering, how are we going to replace that touch? You know, we can do it on eye contact, but what are we going to do on these video calls? And so we had a hypothesis that if we said an oxytocin word, it would create a little bit of oxytocin effect. And that's exactly what we found. So if you are on a video call or in a phone call or even messaging, you can say, sending a digital high five, sending a virtual hug, wish we could cheat kiss, but for now this will have to do. Or besos, like signing up besos or hugs or hugs and kisses. That even just saying touch words can help trigger oxytocin, which is a huge relief, even in writing. Yeah. 
Well, let's talk about um, touch and space in particular, because uh-huh. I know you say there are four areas around our body where we like to interact with different categories of people, the intimacy zone, the personal zone, social zone, uh, and the public zone. And uh-huh. touch is one of those things that, you know, particularly in the Me Too era that I think most people are paranoid about. Like I remember when we had Nick notice here, uh, he said he had a lot of clients who were just absolutely terrified to try to kiss a date because they were scared they would be accused of something. And he said, you know, he said, there's a problem with that is he said, if you don't initiate, things aren't going to happen. He said, like, we can take this way too far. Um, And so, yeah, I'm curious, like how you deal with that. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. As creators, we're always on the move. Whether it's a live podcast event, a pop up shop, or a workshop, we're constantly interacting with community, and that's where Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe comes in. Imagine this, you're at a live event, a listener loves your merch, or a participant wants to sign up for your course on the spot. With Tap to Pay on iPhone and Stripe, you can accept their payments right there and then, right from your iPhone so there's no extra hardware or no delays. Total game changer. It's not just for creators. Any business owner can do this. It's about making transactions smoother and much more personal, growing your business in your way. We've been using Stripe for our products and courses for a long time, and now with Tap to Pay on iPhone, you can take your business to the next level too. So visit stripe.com slash tap iPhone to learn more. Remember folks, with tap to pay on iPhone and Stripe, your business is always at your fingertips. Yes. Okay. So it's very important to be aware of people's comfort zones. And you just mentioned a great way to sort of test the waters. So there are these four zones of space. Now, 
across cultures, the ranges are a little bit different, but the four zones are the same. So about uh, 18 inches apart uh, is the intimate zone. That is reserved for people who we really are close to. It's like pre-kissing. I mean, if you hold up 18 inches from your face, it's really close. That's just reserved for people who we feel really close to. If someone comes into your intimate zone, it's likely that they are feeling quite comfortable with you. The next zone is about 18 inches to about three or four feet apart. Again, these are just approximations. depends on your culture. That is the social zone. I'm sorry, the personal zone, which is where people like to have one-on-one conversations. We can reach out and uh, touch easily. We can touch an arm or touch a shoulder. If someone's in that zone, it means that they feel comfortable enough to have some casual touch. Here's the key though. If someone stays in the social zone, so the social zone is five feet or more apart, that means they probably are not ready for touch. And that's very helpful because if someone's far enough away where when you hold your hand out straight, you cannot touch them, okay, they're not ready yet, right? So you want that, that's a really easy way to know does someone want to be touched? Are they getting close enough to touch? The second thing is I like to ask prep people for touch. So I will say in pre-messages when I hang out with people or even when I first get together, I'm a hugger, are you? Before I go in for the hug. And that way, if someone says, oh, not I'm not a hugger, you can go, oh, no worries, let's high five. And you kind of laugh it off. Or they say, yes, I'm a hugger. And then you hug, right? So I like to actually say the word, which one triggers oxytocin, right? So if I say I'm a hugger, I've already triggered oxytocin. And then two, that gives nice permission. Same thing with like, you know, I really want to kiss you right now, mm-hmm. right? Like that's before you even go in. It's a kind of sexy way of asking permission. So I'm very into... Um, mentioning the words up front and watching their facial responsiveness. Do they eyebrow raise, nod, and smile? Do they, or do they purse their lips, lips turn away and nod no? Right. Those are two very different reactions. Yeah. Let's talk about physical space because one of the things you say is that when you're in one on one interactions where you need to build rapport, make a show of removing all barriers between you and others, clear the table in a client meeting, push aside a computer in a brainstorm session, move your clipboard to the side when talking to people, scoot your coffee over on a date, open body, open heart, open mind. And it's funny because this is one thing that I was very intentional about after a certain point when I would go on dates in San Diego. I found a hotel mm. bar. And the reason I would choose that place was specifically because you couldn't sit at a table. You had to sit on benches next to each other. Oh, and yeah. let's just say that my dates went pretty well. Yes, yes. Okay, so that's interesting because you have two choices to initiate intimacy. And this is why I kind of like cues is you can be flexible with them, right? They're, they're sort of like um, recipes, right? So if you like something a little sweeter, you can add a little more warmth. If you like something a little bit more salty, you can add a little more confidence. It's the same thing with space. So. You can create intimacy by being in someone's intimate zone side by side, right? Benches sitting next to each other. That is creating intimacy simply by being 18 inches apart. And you're making that safe by not being face to face, like nose to nose. Or you can create intimacy by being, by ang- by aligning your toes, your, your toes, your torso, and your head. So fronting. So you can create great intimacy in a small cocktail table facing each other, that fronting, open heart, open body, moving everything aside. That's one way of creating intimacy. Or you can create intimacy by going right into their intimate zone, but side by side. Both of those are lovely options. You should pick what you're most comfortable with. 
All right. I, I had to ask you about the John Stockton story because I'm a diehard NBA 2K basketball player. Like I don't watch oh, actual basketball, but you know, like that story struck me as fascinating because you say Stockton non-verbally telegraphed to other players where the ball would be before he ever passed without realizing it, you might be doing the same. And I was thinking about, uh, you know, the idea of telegraphing your passes, because if, you know, somebody on the opposing team can see that you're telegraphing your passes, you're going to get the ball stolen. I know this because I play this video 100%. game religiously every day. 100%. 100%. So um, I'm fast, I was fascinated by Stockton. I've been fascinated by him for many years because he holds the highest record. And so, and by like a lot, I think I put the numbers in the book, like it's insane how many assists he's had. And so I ended up watching many, many, many of his plays and it's, he actually is quoted as saying that he, with his, um, other players, other teammates, they know each other's nonverbal moves. They can telegraph to each other so quickly and so effectively that that's how he's able to have all these assists. So you're absolutely right. Other team members are trying to watch for these, but they're not going to be nearly as adept at noticing for, for another team's player, right? They just don't play as much. This is the benefit, by the way of learning cues and syncing up your cues with your partners, your colleagues, your kids, your best friends. I think the best wing women and wingmen, the reason why a really good wingman or a really good wingman is so good is because you're telegraphing all these cues that no one would even else, no one else would even pick up on. So Stockton would often front, he would angle very, very quickly in like, you know, a millisecond, he'd shift his shoulders just so another player would know, oh, that ball's coming to me. And that's how he was able to get these assists. And they were so fast. And the other players were so attuned to see that that he ended up, you know, having, um, he still holds the record for the most assists. It is the same thing with the people who are important in your life. When you're doing a double presentation or when you're trying to talk to your partner or you have a wing man, you have to have a look, a gesture, a smile to know exactly where this is my person. Will you help me? Or we got to go or I need rescuing. Those are the cues that are like, oh, the master secret sauce, right? That's how really good partners interact. Yeah. Let's talk about two other things here. Uh, posture and then, uh, you know, what your eyes reveal. Because when I saw that sexiest man in the world thing, I was like, okay, Vanessa, I need you to find me a photographer who's going to literally redo my online dating photos based on this. So let's start with uh, posture first. You say powerful posture isn't just important for your perceived confidence. It's important for your actual confidence. Here's a simple rule. The more powerful you feel, the more space you take up, the more powerful you look. So let's just, you know, for example, talk about going out to dinner at a restaurant or a bar and Mm -hmm. we want to, you know, demonstrate power just from the way that mm-hmm. we're carrying ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So um, I want to give you the weirdest measurement ever. This is all you really have to think about when it comes to posture. I think that people, when they think about like sitting up straight or like what their mothers told them, you know, um, that, that's sort of helpful sitting up straight, but you could end up like puffing out your chest, which doesn't look that great. Or you feel like you're like a, a pupil in a classroom that also doesn't look that great. It looks very rigid. There's only one thing I want you to keep I want you to think about when it comes to posture, which is the distance between your earlobe and your shoulder. Weirdest distance, I know, but that is actually, especially on video calls, it's also, or in, in profile photos, the distance between your earlobe and your shoulder, the shorter that is, the more defeated, ashamed, and embarrassed or low power you look. And that is because, and you can try this, if you shrink your head down and roll your shoulders up, and I'm doing it right now, 
you can actually hear I have less vocal power. Like you can hear I become a little more nasally. It's uh, I, I go a little higher in my voice tone. And that's because when we're in a low power position, it changes our vocal power. The moment I relax my shoulders, I have a lot more volume. I am able to stay a little bit lower in my range. And that is because confident people, their shoulders are down and back. Their chin and their head is up really high, not out, but high. They have their chest nice and relaxed and their arms are loose by their side. When you walk into a bar, when you hop on video, when you walk into a meeting, I want you to maximize the distance between your ear and your shoulder. That's all I want you to think about. That is the most powerful thing you can do for your posture. Okay. And your so, profile photos do. Profile photos do. Let's talk about the eyes because you say that when we widen our eyes, usually when experiencing emotions like fear and surprise, it allows us to see more. If we're afraid, we want to take in as much of our surroundings as possible to assess potential threats. Uh, and then when we narrow our eyes, it blocks out light so we can see greater detail. In some social situations, someone might flex their lower lid while trying to get to know you and understand you better. It's as if they're saying, I want to really see you. And you actually allude to the photos of you know, the sexiest <laughs> men alive. And I'm just thinking to myself, I remember thinking to myself, literally, oh, okay, cool. I need to find a photographer and basically yeah. say, make me look like this. You do. You do. You do. So funny, funny pop culture story here is Zoolander, if you've seen the classic movie, <laughs> yeah. um, Yes. Okay. Ben Stiller does a blue steel, right? And blue mm -hmm. steel is basically him. He pouts his lip, lips and he hardens his lower lid. So you can try to pout your lips and harden your lower lid. Mm, you're blue steel. Okay. He and Will Ferrell, the reason they picked this is because they made fun of Pierce Brosnan, who on the red carpet in every single picture, if you look at Pierce Brosnan on the red carpet, every single picture, he is doing that. He's kind of pouting his lower lips and he's hardening his lower lid. Every single picture of Pierce is piercing eyes. Like literally it's a rule. So they were actually making fun of Pierce Brosnan with that photo. That's, that was the um, inspiration. And when I saw this, I thought, wow. And then I looked at, of course, in the name of science, the 50th sexiest men alive. And on almost every picture, men have hard lower lids. Why? Across races, when we harden our lower lids, less light comes in, we're able to see more detail. And so if we're with a man who is flexing his lower lids at us, we literally are like, oh, he's deeply listening. He's trying to take in every detail about me. And that's what every human loves. Humans love it when you're trying to take in every detail about them. Yeah. So what do I tell a <laughs> photographer? Basically okay. get me to, yeah. So when you say, you know, harden your lower lids, describe it to me. Okay. So I want you to try it when you have the photograph, you should try this yourself first to get your right face. So you want a hardened lower lid and that can be with a smile or not a smile. So you can have a hardened lower lid if you just, um, like, for example, if you, if I ask you to look at a far, uh, sign across the room to try to read it, if you just harden your lower lids just slightly, that's the sort of intense scrutiny. And you can partner that with a small smile. You can partner that with a little eyebrow raise or right? a, a little heart, a lower lid flex and eyebrow raise is saying like, want to talk to me? Do you want to talk to me? <laughs> I'm going to have to have you analyze my online dating yeah. pictures as okay, you know, so for, you for the, for the sake of like, you know, we'll, we'll say it's for the sake of, you know, our listeners research you know, yes, for them good. to understand. I love it. So we should do some before and after. So we should do one neutral one. And we should do one of you, uh, um, harden lower lids. We should do a harden lower lids and eyebrow raise. We should do a harden lower lids and smile. And you can see the differences between them. And by the way, this is very subtle. You don't have to act like you're squinting. It's not a squint, okay. right? It's just a soft lower lid flex. It's like a, it's like a smolder. 
right? So I want you to think that you're just intensely looking at that camera. That is a nonverbal cue of scrutiny or deep listening. And boy, oh boy, do people like it. Well, I'm yeah, I will have to A-B oh, test I, this on, on a dating cover, profile. <laughs> on, my, <laughs> on the cover of my book, I have a whole lower lip flex, right? Like I'm doing it on the cover of my book. So it's not just dating profiles. It's also uh, intense. Inten- it's intense, right? It shows intensity. If you don't want to be intense, you shouldn't do it. Okay, cool. Um, let's talk about voice. Uh, you know, at, naturally as a podcaster, this was something that really was fascinating. You say how we say our words, our tone, volume, pace, syntax, and cadence is just as important as what we say. We can tell a lot about a person, their emotional state, their intentions, and their personality from their voice. Understanding vocal cues is incredibly important for uncovering others' feelings towards you, your work, and your projects. And I think that this in particular struck me a lot because probably one of the nicest things that people have said is you have a voice that's made for radio. It's just pleasant to you listen do. to. Like I had you, a you listener so tell me that. Yeah. But I don't know why that happens. Like, I don't know what is the explanation for that. Like, I'm wondering why that is. Oh, I know why it is. It's because um, when you speak, you speak in the back of your head, which sounds really crazy, but it's so I'm working to do it. You do it more naturally. If you have someone speaking in the front of their head, um, they tend to speak more like this. So they're like a lot more leaning forward and they want to, they want to yell at you. They want to tell you what to do. They speak in the front of their mouth in, as opposed to speaking in the back of their head. Do you hear the difference there? Very subtle. Um, you speak deeply in the back of your head. You also have a lot of, I think, space and resonance in your voice. So that nice, low baritone, it's so nice to listen to. I totally agree. You have one of the best podcaster voices. Totally agree. <laughs> totally agree. Thanks. Okay. Well, you know, now, now that you've, you know, inflated my ego, let's actually talk about how our listeners can do this for themselves. Yes. Okay. So, um, first we use our, we manipulate our voice tone with breath and this happens without us even realizing it. So when I run out of breath, I have to work harder to speak, which makes me speak higher up in my tone and also makes me push out my words so that I begin to lose my vocal power. And then I sound more like I'm really, really trying. And that's a horrible thing to listen to. If I were to give my answers like this, it would sound very, very forced. That is because I, I was speaking at the end of my breath. The moment I take a deep breath and I maximize that space between my shoulder and my earlobe, that's another reason why we love to have that. And I speak on the out breath it pushes the air out. It pushes me down lower and that's a much higher point. So if you're on a call and you hear yourself going up here, I want you to take a deep breath and speak on the out breath. The mistake that we make is we speak when we're out of breath. So we start a sentence and we're, we have lots of breath and we're talking really well and then we run out of breath and then we kind of start to push the end of our sentence out. So I would rather you pause mid-sentence and take a breath to lower your tone as opposed to trying to get your words out when you're out of breath. Yeah. Let's talk about volume because as you know, I was telling you, in my family, there's just one volume, loud. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. You say that true vocal power comes from showing mastery of volume dynamism. Controlling your volume shows you have control of your message. When master communicators want to show excitement, they speak up. When they want to share secrets or insider information, they speak quietly, forcing listeners to lean in. And reading that makes me think about something that I've noticed as a pattern when I've interviewed people. I noticed that a lot of podcasters 
dread the awkward silence, even if it's like five to 10 seconds. Yeah. I've noticed that when I say absolutely nothing, which I have actually gotten decent at doing, that is usually when I will get the most profound and beautiful sound bites out of people. Yes. Yes. So that pause, so pausing is, is powerful. So first of all, being masterful with your volume, being purposeful, I would say with your volume is really important. So if you have a presentation or something important to share, you should know where you want to dial up and speak louder because you are passionate about it. And when you want to share a little, little insider information, a little background, and you go a little bit quieter, that's, that helps the listener and actually just like giving them cliff notes for where they should be excited and pay attention and where they should lean in and sort of hear background information. So that's actually a helpful cue for the listener. The second thing is that um, when you allow for pauses, when, when you volume shift or before and after answers, it's also allowing the other person to go a little bit deeper, right? So you can use a, bre- a breathing pause, so time for you to take breath or reset your volume is also a way to ask anything else, right? Like those pauses are a way to just see, do you have anything else in there that you want to talk to me about? My mom actually shared this tip with me very early on. And she said to me that a lot of the times um, to get men to go deeper, to have to show them that you really want to listen, after they give an answer, wait three to five seconds to see if they, that you honor them, that you are waiting to see if they have anything else they want to share. Because women, we have it, not always, but women have the tendency to jump in <laughs> and just share their answers and to give their opinion really fast. And that was the best thing she could have said to me because I ended up marrying an introvert. And my introverted husband, who's very quiet, if I didn't do that, I wouldn't have gotten to know him as deeply as in the very beginning. And that was one of the best tips for interacting with introverts is give them that extra three to five seconds as a way of saying, I'm still here. No rush. Yeah. So one other thing you say about uh, vocals is emotion is what captures people's attention and hooks them in to want to listen. Words imbued with emotion are more easily remembered. And the funny thing is that People have always asked, what is it that makes you choose a podcast guest? And I always say genuine curiosity. That's it. If I'm curious, because I know that if I'm curious, then I'll never be bored. And I pretty much know that if I'm bored interviewing somebody, I will cut the interview in the middle and tell the person to go back and listen to an episode or just tell them this isn't going the way I need it to, which is not polite at all. And, you know, some people have told me to go to hell. Um, Others have agreed. Yeah, no, I mean, that is literally why I do it. I'm like, if I'm bored listening to this person during the interview, there's no way our listeners won't be bored. Yeah, so true. So true. And so, yes, go ahead. Yes, I I totally agree. Thumbs up. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, so, you know, but the thing is, I think that people try to fake this too sometimes. You know, like, I I don't think you can fake emotion. Mm -hmm. You know, you can fake it till you make it to a certain extent. I do not believe in faking it until you make it. I think that a lot of the times you can leak boredom, right? It's really, really hard to conceal our emotions. So I agree with you. It's really, really hard to conceal or to change our emotions, especially boredom, apathy, anger, or fear. It's really, really hard to hide those emotions. And so there's some other emotions that are a little bit easier to hide. Like sometimes we can hide our shame if we're embarrassed. You don't always know that. Um, sometimes we can hide our discomfort. That's one that we can sometimes hide. Like you don't always know if someone's uncomfortable socially. But if you're bored, it's very, very hard to feign interest. You can do it, but it is exhausting, right? And so 
I mean, if you, if you have the ability to, to cut it off, cut it off. Life is too short. Yeah. Well, it's funny you, you say that because it just reminded me of a story. I remember going on a date with this girl in San Diego who channeled dead people. And I'm thinking to myself, well, I like talking to people who are alive. Um, <laughs> and 45 yeah. minutes into the date, she looks at me and she's like, I'm not really feeling this. I'm going to go and I'm going to pay for my own drinks. And I looked at her. I was like, thank you. And, and I was like, why don't people do that more often? Like, why Amazing. are we sitting here when clearly, you know, both of us are bored just to be polite? Amazing. By the way, I do think that the world is going more towards that. I think that we are learning social assertiveness in a way that we can all swallow. I also think we've realized like life is too short and we, our social interactions are need to be precious now. And so I think that we're going to start seeing more behavior like that, where if there's a bad date or people aren't clicking or like toxic friends or friends out of habit, you know, I lost all my friends by habit. I used to have friends that I just sort of saw because we always saw each other and we were old friends and why not? We invited each other to birthday parties. Well, in the pandemic, that stopped. And so I think that we're getting to the point where we're not going to have any more accidental friends. We're not going to have any more um, relationships out of habit, we're going to begin to choose them. And that's going to empower us to be more assertive. And I'm excited for that. Like, let us start that with this podcast. Like, let's start more social assertiveness, please. Yeah. Let's talk now about imagery. I mean, obviously, as somebody who runs a creative brand that uses a ton of imagery, uh, I'm really fascinated by you know what we're communicating with our imagery, because I know you go into detail about color, Explain to me, you know, particularly in the context of like a website or something like that, you know, how do we communicate what we want to communicate? Yes. So imagery was a really fun uh, chapter, right? It's actually one of the longest chapters in the book. And that's because there, there are so many cues that we send with images. As we talked about at the very beginning with our neural maps, right? So images are one of the most powerful ways to trigger neural maps. And so on our marketing materials, in our website, in our profiles, we have to be very, very purposeful with the kind of images that we're using. And that can include color. Now, I really struggle with the color in the book because color psychology is very, very mostly pseudoscience. It's very, very hard to reliably study color associations because everyone has different color associations. Different cultures have different color associations. That is actually how I teach it, which is we need to know, or you need to know what your color associations are and what the color association associations might be for your ideal person. And that's what you should try to trigger. So for example, for science of people, I knew that we want, we're very sciencey, obviously science of people. And so I wanted to trigger neural maps of professional, of even like newspaper. So our main brand colors are black and white, right? Especially yeah. in the beginning, they were black and white because I purposely wanted to trigger that. And then I made our pop of color yellow this is in the very beginning because I wanted people to think of highlighting. Like when you're reading something black and white, like a book, the only color that usually comes into it is a highlighter, typically. And that worked for very many, many years because I was, and I specifically used highlighter, like a, like a highlighter line as an image in my website as a way to say, these are the, the highlights I want you to take out for you. I'm giving you the cliff notes of some of this science. That image paired with our verbal mission was immediately resonant with the people who liked that. If you loved reading and you loved science and you wanted social hacks, we were your people. If you were not a big reader and you like skimming and you just want to see it in a, in a TikTok, we're not your people, 
right? And so I think that you can think about what does your ideal person want? What kind of images and neural maps do you want to create for them? You should be signaling to them throughout your entire website. What color is going to resonate with them? Is red too much, right? Like cues, we decided to do red because I wanted it to be a little bit more urgent. I wanted to, mm-hmm. I wanted it to feel kind of loud. And it is a loud book. I mean, the cover and the red is loud. And I wanted that. Like I wanted people to be like, oh, wow, this is big. And if you don't want big, it's not for you. So yeah. same thing as what kind of colors, what kind of images are going to trigger the right things for the right people. It's funny you say that because red is like a integral part of our brand colors. Like, and yes. my friends always tease me when I got a pair of custom shoes. He was like, is everything in your life or advertisement for unmistakable? Like pretty much. He was like, those pretty shoes much. are literally like the color of your website. He was like, yep. We're I was like, you did that on purpose, didn't you? I was like, yes. Yes. We're entrepreneurs. We have to say, constantly talk about our business. Jay-Z Come would on. call that an empire state of mind. There you go. There you go. Boom. Oh, I like it. Red in particular, though, is a color that fascinates me. And I, I am curious about this. Like, I feel like to me, there's one thing that I think I find completely irresistible in a room. And that's a woman who walks in in a red dress. Like, I can't not notice that. Oh, I like what it. What is that about? That's, by the way, that's a, a woman who puts on a red dress, wants to signal to men who are going to appreciate a red dress, Right. They, they're signaling in a way, by the way, a red dress is not appealing to every man. It's not. No. So one is that's a signal to you, right? That, that that's the kind of attention she wants. And then the actual scientific thinking about this is that red typically means ripe. So back in our caveman days, we were hunting for ripe strawberries or ripe raspberries or red apples. And of course, there are other colors of fruit as well, but red was typically, ah, this means either ripe or stay away from this right? Red poisonous, red don't eat it. And so red is just a color of attention. Not always positive, sometimes negative, which why, which is why I said red is just loud. And if you want someone who likes that, fantastic. If you want something more demure, use the pastel. Well, you know, it's funny because I remember talking to Mars Dorian, who kind of really was the guy behind the visual voice of Unmistakable. And he grew up in uh, East Germany before the fall of the Berlin Wall. And when he told me about all this, I said, oh, my God, everything about the way that you illustrate suddenly makes sense to me. Everything you do basically screams with a complete disregard for authority. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You, it was signal. It was signal to you. Like you could feel it even in the, in, the, in the stroke of the way that the art was done, that it signaled, it calls out to you. Yeah. Which is why I liked it so much. And I think that's why he was the one that was responsible for so much of what we did. Um, yeah. I, and that's, that's very purposeful. I, it drives me crazy when people use stock images that don't, that are just like, sort of like, yeah, sure. I need a picture of people talking. And I have now a team that does my website and I am always fighting with them. I'm like, this stock image is not on brand. Like this, we cannot use this stock image. And so the, a fight that I have internally with my team is like, we can't use stock images because we're, we're saying we have to stand out. So using a stock image is the exact opposite of what we're saying. Yet we need a picture to visually cue people what's the picture. So actually, yeah. it's funny because internally, that's a fight we have constantly every week. We spend a ton of money on quote unquote unique stock photography and our own stock photography because it's a huge issue. So it's just funny that that also internally is something that we think about a lot too. Yeah, well, you know, I remember the first time that we saw the first design of the Unmistakable Creative website when we rebranded. I was like, 
this doesn't look like a website for creatives. And I remember looking at it and I was like, I know what's wrong. I was like, we need to get rid of all the stock photography and we need to have Mars custom design all of the icons. And that was pretty much what changed everything. Yes, yes. So now look, if I get it, if people listening are like, I don't have that kind of resource. I don't have those kind of resources. That's okay. Like I would rather have it be minimal with the right fewer callouts than lots of random callouts you can't control, right? Like I would much, much rather you be purposeful with where you can be. Yeah. All right. So I have uh, a few final questions and we'll wrap things up. So this is a lot to keep in mind. Uh, and I oh, wonder, no. <laughs> like, do you have to consciously think about this while you're doing it? Or is it at, at a certain point, does it just become how do you operate unconsciously? Because like, like you said, like, I don't need to think about the tonality of my voice. This is just the way that I speak. Like, I'm not sitting here thinking, okay, let me yeah. have this inflection here and that inflection here. Although I do actually have a question regarding voice, but we'll get back to that. Yes, not anymore. So the nice thing about cues are, luckily our brain is already very aware of cues. So labeling them actually might feel more like, ah, I'm labeling my intuition. So hopefully a lot of the cues will be like, yes, I do this naturally, we didn't know why. So that that's a couple of the cues, which are already happening naturally. But cues are very much like working out for the first time, right? The first time that you do a squat, you have to think about your form where you're like, okay, how are my feet angled? Are my knees over my toes? Keep my back straight. Like you're very aware of every aspect of the squat. Then you do it again and again. You do it a week later. You do it three weeks later. Then after a while, you're not even thinking about your form anymore because you have this muscle memory. It is the same thing with cues. The first time you try them on, it's going to be a little clunky. You're going to be like, okay, like, do I not? Okay, now now I tilt a little bit too much. Okay, now lean in. Oh, what, we're in the social zone? Great. And that's okay because it's like learning the fundamentals. Then the muscle memory will kick in. So I I always say stick with it because the right cues will stick with you and they'll become very habitual. Now I barely think about them. They're so intuitive to me that I um, am able to develop, I devote all my cognitive load towards just connecting. Yeah. So one thing I was curious about in terms of uh, vocals, I, to this day, still hate the way that we end the show. Like, I can't think of a better way to end this than say, we'll wrap the show with that. And I'm just like, okay, so ending a conversation, what do you know yeah. about that? So I like to I use a vocal cue to end conversation, which is using like the closing tone. And mm-hmm. the closing tone is really great if it's partnered with a verbal exit cue. So verbal exit cues are usually like a future mention. So like, um, so uh, what are you up to this weekend? Well, cool. I hope you have a great time with that. And it was great talking to you, right? I, I mentioned a future mention, then you can hear me go into that closed tone or it could be a follow-up. So, um, well, great. I, I will definitely reach out to you on LinkedIn. I'll send you all those assets. And it's so great talking to you. Thanks so much for doing this. Right? Yeah. So it's, a verbal, a future mention or a follow-up plus that closed tone. And we know that as humans that we're about to close, that's a really effective way to end because you're almost like more like, um, uh, doing like a a close out, right? You're like allowing the person to slowly ramp down. Yeah. Well, speaking of which, I feel like I could sit here and talk to you for like five hours. So interesting. I love it too. I know. Um, (laughs) So I want to finish with my final question, which I've asked you before. And it's always interesting to see how people answer this question when they come back. Uh, what do you think? I don't even remember my last answer. So it'll be good makes to hear. Somebody yeah. or something unmistakable. Yes. Mm, I'm, glad I don't, I'm glad I don't remember what I said originally. You'll have to tell me if it was the same. 
I think being ruthlessly who you are, going back to what we first mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I tried for a long time to be everyone else. I tried for a long time to be a chameleon and try to fake it till I make it. And it's never worked. And I think that the more that you're ruthlessly who you are, the more that you figure out your unique flavor of charisma, that is what makes people unmistakable. It's not that they're trying to be someone thing they're not. They're not trying to be someone else. They're not trying to blend in. They're ruthless with themselves and they're okay with it. Amazing. Uh, well, I have one request. I was wondering if you would be willing to give away a copy or a couple of copies of your books for people who would be willing to share the interview. Oh my goodness. Yeah, I'm happy to give away a copy. Yes, and I can um, sign it for whoever. Uh, first of all, if you buy the book, amazing. If you share this episode, even more amazing. So yes, I'd love to send out a cool. little personal and copy to someone. Yeah. Great. Well, we'll put a link uh, on the actual page for the episode for people to share to uh, win a copy of Vanessa's book. But where can people find out more about you, uh, your work, the book, the research, and you know what basically is a rabbit hole of interesting facts <laughs> about human behavior? Yes. Okay. So the book is available wherever books are sold, Amazon, airports, Barnes & Noble, and also got picked up internationally. So it should be available internationally as well. And then of course, you can check me out on YouTube. I'm Vanessa Van Edwards. I have a ton of cute breakdowns, by the way, that I couldn't put in the book. Like I break down The Rock and Obama and Justin Bieber. And I do a whole Britney Spears cute breakdown. Um, so if you want to check out that, you can. And then uh, sciencepeople.com is where I have all uh, my articles and resources too. Amazing. And for everybody listening, we will wrap the show with that. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do 
and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Have you ever felt a twinge of worry about AI taking over your job or diluting your creativity? Well, what if you could turn that fear into creative fuel? We've just published an amazing new ebook called The Four Keys to Success in an AI World. And this is more than just a guide. It's a deep exploration into the human skills that AI can't touch, the skills that are essential for standing out and thriving, no matter how much technology evolved. We're talking about real differentiators here, like creativity, emotional intelligence, critical thinking, and much more. Inside, you'll find actionable insights and strategies to develop these skills, whether you're a creative person, a business person, or just simply someone who loves personal development. This isn't a story about tech taking over. It's a story of human creativity thriving alongside AI. Picture this, AI as your creative co-pilot, not just as a tool, but a collaborator that enhances your unique human skills. The Four Keys ebook will show you exactly how to do that and view AI in a new way that empowers you instead of overshadows you. Transform your creative potential today. Head over to unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys. Use the number four, K-E-Y-S. That's unmistakablecreative.com slash four keys and download your free copy.